I remember the day surprisingly clearly. I was sitting in Mrs. Paz's fourth grade music classroom, surrounded by other 10-year-olds. She opened up a box, put a VHS into the VCR, ancient terminology, I know, dimmed the lights, and then... There were just these six people attached to this big metal structure, swinging back and forth in sync. The wall was lined with buckets and pans and tires and signs and other car parts, and a couple of the guys were hitting them with sticks. Then a few more. And then, it made sense. It was Stomp, a group well-known for these antics. They made music with brooms, trash cans, buckets, basically whatever they could find lying around. Well, anything except for actual instruments. But what was so amazing for 10-year-old me, sitting crisscross applesauce and basking in the glory of the 1999 HBO special Stomp Out Loud, was that they were making art out of junk, transforming the discarded afterthoughts of others into something otherworldly and beautiful. I thought it was pretty cool. Stomp's influence stayed with me. Eventually, during a high school summer program, I did a talent show performance that emulated that opening scene of Stomp Out Loud. I gathered kitchen materials from the cafeteria and put together a makeshift drum set for a solo called Pots and Pans. And I was trying to figure out what it was about the approach Stomp took to creating art that was so mesmerizing. I mean, they were great musicians, so that was helpful, but there was just something about how they took things that seemed purposeless and showed that they had purpose. Stuff that was thrown out, never to be used again, left to pile up and not biodegrade most of the time. They were using that junk as instruments. And maybe you've been there, taking out the trash and hearing the rhythmic turning of the wheels or sweeping up your kitchen floor and noticing a pattern. Still, you probably don't look at your cardboard boxes and scrap metal as beautiful even if you can imagine a bunch of grown men beating on them. But if you opened up your garage and Joe Girondola wandered in, he would see something beautiful. You know, even this object like a milk crate, it's uh, readily available on every street corner. You'll see them everywhere. I think about the designer who designed it. I think about the process that goes into the injection molding that makes the object. Even though thousands upon thousands of milk crates are made every day, and discarded every day. I think about that process that went into designing this object that could be decided by some to be these junk objects. 
He's the president of the Art Academy of Cincinnati, which is a small college in the Midwest for creativity, arts, and design. But he's also an active artist. He got to start in Florence, Italy in the 1990s, where his training was uh, in traditional stone carving, hammer and chisel, learning uh, traditional methodology without pneumatic tools or electric tools, really learning the age-old practice of really transforming the material of stone. That style of work with a hands-on technique of transforming a material is still active in my work today, even though the materials have drastically changed. These days, some of Joe's most prominent work is made with duct tape. Big paintings of the Taj Mahal, Stonehenge, cars, warplanes. More and more, it, it became a practice of really seeing how that you know, drastic contrast of carving a piece of Carrara marble to making a duct tape drawing on a piece of cardboard was so vastly different in visual appeal. And I've always been drawn to that dynamic difference in my practice, you know, and trying to recreate uh, something very beautiful out of discarded materials, I think for me was looking for hidden gems all over the place and just kind of a, uh, as a visual practice. When he was just starting out in the U.S. during graduate school in Georgia, he was doing a lot of what he had been doing back in Italy. I had always looked at stone carving as the highest form of sculpture. Because, you know, I have Italian roots, you go to Florence, you go to Rome, you see some of the masterworks of some of the greatest artists that have lived. And I always thought that, for me, I was going to try to achieve somewhat that style of work without really ever thinking about the material in its conceptual content of how the material lends the information to the finished piece. I always looked at, oh, it's marble, it's beautiful, I'll just carve it into something that has content and people will appreciate it. When I met uh, this artist, Mel Chin, he said to me something very important in my life. He said, do you really think that Michelangelo, if he lived today with all the materials, 3D printing techniques, you know, all the tools at his disposal, would still be using a hammer and chisel carving marble? With all of those ideas he had, in wanting to get out as much work as possible, do you think he would still spend seven years carving a sculpture? And for me, it's like a light bulb switch went off. And I went, you know what? I need to add into my practice a variety of materials that mean something to the idea and relate to the content that I'm trying to achieve with the piece. And for me, the material started going all across the board from duct tape to steel to copper to making all of these sculptural objects where the material choice was as important as the idea behind the piece. And that change in mentality led to an explosion of creativity. Right after his mentor, Mel Chin, asked him about what materials Michelangelo might use today, he went on a drive. I immediately, the next day, I had this 1978 Mercury Grand Marquis. I said, well, if I'm not gonna be the one carving the stone, how about I take a big American beast of an automobile and let the car carve the block of stone? 
as a conceptual methodology to take the artist's hand away from the, the act of carving. So I would take these blocks of stone and drag them around all over Athens and Atlanta, Georgia to let the street and the car carve the block to try to make like a classical portrait head of society. But he was just getting started pushing the bounds of what he knew in the art world. Not long after, Joe heard about some kids who were wearing glasses to school so they wouldn't get bullied. This idea of like you wouldn't hit someone with glasses in our day and age in school as an anti-bullying technique was very interesting to me. And so I started collecting all these broken eyeglasses and transforming them into weapons as sculptures, as a relation to the content of this idea from that statement, you wouldn't hit someone with eyeglasses, would you? And for me, that was a start of a conceptual art practice where the material that I chose to work with was in its inception a very important part of the finished piece. The outcome was a circle of glasses frames, each warped so that they were shaped like guns. And that's where things started to change even more. While Joe was still a graduate student, the crack cocaine epidemic became big news and the federal government declared a war on drugs. Joe saw this crisis unfolding and began to imagine what types of solutions the government might pursue. What came to mind for him? A human-sized rat trap, painted with the words crack trap and the logo for DARE, the Drug Abuse Resistance Education Program. To entice people to try to steal the vial of crack cocaine, and then this will be the solution to, you know, all the drug problems we have in America. That's what that piece was about. But based on the ridiculous notion of kind of the inappropriate money that was being spent on the war on drugs without going into the communities and talking to individuals of how devastating this was for neighborhood after neighborhood after neighborhood to try to really see how poverty leads to rampant kind of drug use in this kind of infiltration of these neighborhoods being devastated. And it's, uh, you know, that piece was a satirical look at how the government reacts to problems. Turning people's heads to the wrongs he saw in society became a big part of Joe's mission as an artist. But he's faced criticism. Why not make normal art or be more direct about the message he wants to send? Or if he really wants to make a difference, why not run for office? He thinks that the work he does holds a special type of power. I want to create a dualistic kind of world of being very subtle to make you dive in and start to ask questions about why you would be creating work with duct tape, why you'd be creating work about, with milk crates. And the more those questions can reveal something else in the audience member, the person viewing the work, I think that leads toward a kind of a successful avenue of why I'm creating work. For me, deep down, I would say, you know, there's an ultimate joy in making things, always. And I always will have that within me. 
you know, so many times if someone looks at a, say, a duct tape drawing of uh, horses racing around a track that I've created, they will never, I don't think, get to the point, even if I explained that this is about a memory I had with my father, they won't ever get that story unless they're talking to me directly. And that's not so much the point as allowing a viewer to enjoy the piece and think what they want. And that might really be the beauty in junk. It tells us stories we can't hear anywhere else, and it lets us appreciate the beautiful ways that people are always making our lives a little bit easier. So next time you do some spring cleaning, take a second look before you toss things in the trash. Someone might have spent a lot of time dreaming up the ways that collapsible cardboard box would collapse, or designing the rotating handle on that plastic bucket. And who knows? Someone might find it lying in a junkyard a few years down the line, see the beauty in it, and build it into something even you think belongs in a museum. I'm Remy Rea for WPRB 103.3.